0: continue this series called See the World. And if you were here last week, or if maybe this is your first week and you missed last week, um, I would encourage you to to go back. Um, You can do that through the app. Uh, Last week, kind of set the stage for what's going to be the journey for us and our final four weeks here. Because uh, let me give you a little bit of backdrop. We are in our countdown, our final countdown, not the kind of final countdown, but like the final countdown for this space. Um, we have counting today, four more Sundays in this room. So if you like these chairs, hold on to them extra tight because you've got four more weeks of these chairs and then we move. Uh, we're relocating about a mile and a half down the road, a really super convenient um, spot um, right on the other side of the interstate from Legacy Place. So we're super excited. 10,000 square foot space that's coming along beautifully. And in fact, you are all invited because I would never and do this if this is my house because we wouldn't fit. But you are all invited to a drop-in today from 5 to 7 um, there at 18 Southwest Park, Westwood, uh, Massachusetts. It's uh, going to We just are opening the doors, let you walk through, see, um, because we're about halfway through the project. And there are drywall that's starting to get stuck on the wall. Um, if you have construction questions, save them because I'm not going to help you with them. But I can tell you this is a wall and this is going to have a color on it and it's going to be beautiful. And so just kind of the, set the stage for that. But the reason we've done that, uh, the reason last week set the frame is we wanted to begin to imagine what is the focus as we transition in this next chapter And last week was about focus and the power of focus to shape our future, that what we tend to focus in on starts to become the future we start to live in. And uh, and that power of focus in our own lives that we saw from the life of a guy named Joseph, who is a powerful example to us, um, is to kind of turn the question inward today and to say, what does it look like for a church to be focused? What does it look like for Christians to be focused? Um, Maybe you're in the room today and you're in kind of a stage in a spiritual journey and you're not sure what you believe. Um, This is an insightful message for you. It may not be super instructive to you, but this is insightful because what I want to do today is unpack what does it look like for Christians to be focused. Um, I grew up coaching soccer and I think soccer um, is a great way of capturing The power of focus. I have coached everything from three-year-olds to high school um, kids. And when you start coaching with the younger kids, uh, it's all about focus. It's all about teaching them how to control their focus. Because if you've ever seen a group of three, four, five-year-olds playing soccer, you know what it looks like for humans to, to look like an amoeba, right? It's wherever the ball is, everyone on the field is around that ball. It doesn't matter what side. It doesn't matter if it's out of bounds. All the kids are just running around wherever the ball happens to go. And part of the training is like, all right, let's focus on your position. You have a space. You have a home. Set up residence there. Live there. Invite people in, but do not chase the ball. And then you start to have to change their focus around this other thing, that there is a good goal, and then there is a bad goal, that you have to be careful because the idea of soccer is not just to kick the ball into any goal, it's to kick it into the right goal. I mean, and so I remember coaching kids and they kick it in the goal and they're cheering, they're jumping around and you're like, great job, you just scored a point for the other team, way to go. You don't say that out loud, but you're like, I've got to lead them there because at a certain point that starts to violate the heart of the game, right? It's all about controlling their focus because they've got it, it's just on the wrong thing. And as you have done anything in life, you realize it's not just soccer where our focus can get um, distracted or our focus can drip off. And we end up focusing on things that are lesser important things that start to crowd out, and we start to ignore the actual important things in life. And for Christians, I think especially, we can fall prey to that same reality. And as we move into this next season as a church, as a people, what is to kind of capture our focus? What's meant to to be that most important thing that is demonstrated? And fortunately for us, Jesus, um, who is the founder of Christianity and is the the bedrock of this thing called the church, um, he spoke words specifically to the focus of the church that it's kind of helpful to understand Jesus and his context is he spends about 33 years on planet earth alive. Uh, if you were to take the timeline, the first 30 years of his life is a little bit of a black hole. We know that he, he grows up. We see a couple moments in his childhood But he grows up and he probably is a carpenter slash masoner uh, with his family business, doing what most Jewish boys would have done at the time. He is religiously schooled in the same way that other religious, um, the other way Jewish boys would have been at the time. But around age 30, something significant happens. He shows up where a crowd is gathered with a preacher speaking. And that preacher points to him, baptizes him and tells everyone in the world, there's something special about this guy. And that's the birth of this thing that we now call Christianity. And for three years from that moment, Jesus begins to speak and teach and travel and heal and perform miraculous deeds. And everyone in the known world, like everyone in those communities in the nation of Israel starts to travel to him. They start to, to hear about him. He is a celebrity. He's a big deal. And he starts to gather not just a crowd, but he also starts to gather some enemies And the final week of his life is known in kind of religious circles as the Passion Week because it sets the stage for what happens at the end of that week where he's crucified on a cross, uh, a Roman capital punishment at the time that was excruciating. And then three days later, the very foundation of the Christian faith, the actual, the one thing that if you remove it, all of Christianity falls away, the resurrection happens. And Jesus walks out of a grave. The only man who's ever in history been killed and then said, by the way, before you kill me, three days from now, you set your watch by this, I'm walking out, right? I am moving on up. I am coming out. It's going to happen. Only one who's ever done that. And Jesus does it. And because he predicts his death and then actually predicts his resurrection and then follows through, naturally people start to gather around him because I would probably gather around someone if they predicted their death and then predicted their resurrection, and then it happened. And so this thing gathering around him becomes the church. And in in the course of his life, there is four biographies written about him. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They serve as the bedrock of what you call the Christian Bible, the New Testament. And Matthew is an interesting guy. Matthew is one of the first biographies you get to in the New Testament. Matthew is a guy who is incredibly successful. He's incredibly... um, focused. He's a man who understands details. He's essentially a government contract employee, specifically in accounting. So he's a man who knows how to pay attention to spreadsheets and details and nuances. And Matthew is incredibly wealthy. The the business sector he's working in is paying off really well. And then one day he meets Jesus. And Jesus says, Matthew, come follow me. What you're doing is not satisfying you. What you're doing is not fulfilling you. There's more to life than what you're experiencing. And Matthew walks away from it all. He leaves it, and he starts to follow Jesus. And one of Matthew's greatest contributions to history is that he writes with that attention to detail that you would have find with any great accountant, the life and the message and the words and the miracles of Jesus. And Matthew spends a pretty significant portion of his book um, focused in on some major speeches Jesus does. And one of the last speeches Jesus does, just a few days before he dies, is what I want to go to today. I'm setting the backdrop because I want you to understand why Jesus is going to sound so passionate. Why, on the surface, when you first read this, it's going to be confusing, but you can tell that it's kind of harsh. It's because Jesus is about three days from being crucified. The reason he's going to be crucified is there's a group of religious leaders. There's a group of men who are scheming and plotting how to kill him. And a few days before he dies, he finds himself in the presence of the very men who are going to crucify him. The very men who are going to scheme to derail him. And in that moment, Jesus knows this is a teaching moment for these 12 guys who've been following him. That these guys, who've this crowd, these men and women who've been walking behind Jesus, they're getting ready to be entrusted with something called the church. And Jesus wants to make sure that they don't fall into the same trap that the religious leaders of the day fell into. Jesus understands that there is something subtle about the human condition where we tend to drift from the important and our focus drifts to the unimportant. And he wants to make sure that the church doesn't fall into the same trap, into the same ditch that the current religious structures of the day has. And so in Matthew 23, in just two simple verses, um, I want us to focus our attention on that so that we as a church can be better focused in our attention in the next season. In Matthew 23, Matthew 23, Jesus lists a series of woe statements, which is not something you and I do unless you're like, whoa, right? It's not that kind of woe. It's a woe and a curse, like this is bad, like, whoa, this is not the way it's supposed to be. He he does something that's very distinctly um, Jewish. So that's why when you read this passage, you're going to say, I don't know if I'm tracking along with what's being said. This is Jesus, who is not just a miracle worker, but he's also incredibly brilliant. He's a rabbi, he's a teacher, and he understands something. So what he does is he gives a series of seven woes. And, and I don't want to bog down in the seven different woes, because Jesus actually does something that's common in his day. He, he essentially makes a, an argument sandwich. Okay, so to take his seven arguments, he puts it in a sandwich form, and if you're interested in learning more what the sandwich form would be called, it's called a chiastic structure if you're one of those people that really like to know those kind of details, but this form, this sandwich, a chiastic structure is all about what you put in the middle. The middle statement is the most important statement. The middle statement, like a good sandwich, is where the meat is. It's where the good part is. You eat through the bread to get to the PB&J. You eat through the bread to get to the burger. This is the burger. and this one statement, he gives the meat of what these seven statements are pointing to. And this is the criticism to these religious leaders who have kind of confronted Jesus that he knows in just a few days is going to lead to his demise. He says to them, woe to you, teachers of the law, and Pharisees. These are two separate religious group leaders. These are the PhDs and the scholars of the day. These are the guys who everyone looks up to. These, if there were baseball trading cards in the Jewish world back then, but instead of baseball trading cards, they would have been rabbi trading cards. These would have been the rabbi trading cards you would have bragged about. Like, hey, have you seen my rabbi trading card I just got this week in the set? It's awesome. Wow. You know, and there he is, Rabbi Abraham, you know, and it's like, look at him. He's awesome. Like, these are these kind of guys, incredibly influential, incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful in their day and age. And he says to them, you hypocrites, right, which none of us ever like to be called. It's just as striking then as it is today, except these are the religious leaders. And he says, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You see, what Jesus does is he zeroes in on a religious debate that these these leaders would have been having. Um, Religious leaders, Jesus understood that if you're not careful, religious people, people who are um, dedicated to their faith, will start to shift from demonstrating that faith to debating about that faith, and he knows that's a subtle shift that'll happen. That's what happened to these people. They went from demonstrating the faith to debating it to the point that Jesus, to illustrate it, actually pulls out three different illustrations. He says that you spend your time debating about mint, dill, and cumin, Right? And so this is, this is kind of, let me help you understand the religious context, because Jesus is going straight to a religious debate that was common in his day. You see, the idea of the tithe, the tithe is this um, concept that you find in the Jewish faith. It's this idea that you give to God as an offering, as a sacrifice, as a religious kind of declaration to your faithfulness to him. You give 10% of your harvest. You give 10% of your earnings. That, that's the idea of the tithe. If you grew up in church, you probably have heard that, because the, within the New Testament and Christian faith, that carried over. But within the Jewish debate of the day was, how far do you take the tithe? Where do you stop? There wasn't a primary form of currency. There was a lot of different ways that trade and currency happened. And so they said, well, it should probably, the tithe should apply, like it says in the Old Testament, to plants and to crops and to harvest not just the money. And they're like, oh, that's good. Well, how far do we take the plants and the crops? And so the religious debate of the day had centered around these three specifically because these were the smallest of all the spices in Israel. It's, it's mint, it's dill, and it's cumin, tiny little plants that produce tiny minuscule amounts of spices that take a lot of time to gather together but make food taste better. And the religious leaders were like, you should, you should tithe even your spices, even the smallest of spices. I mean, can you imagine? Like, this is where these people's minds are. Um, if you've ever seen dill or mint, these are tiny little leaves. I mean, what do you do? Do you pour it out? And you're like, okay, those are nine leaves for me, one leaf for God. Right, oh, cumin, oh, do I tithe before I make the powder? Or do I, do I tithe the seed? Oh, well, okay, nine seeds to God. I'll take this one seed. And you can imagine hours spent sifting this stuff to get to the 10th so that you can show up with your tiny little minuscule amount at the temple and say, here you go, God. I mean, this is what had framed these people's lives. They had been caught up with this idea. It was a religious debate had consumed them. They had lost sight of demonstrating their faith. And what starts to happen when that starts to creep in is incredibly self-righteous, self-consumed people. People who are so focused on counting out the leaves that they don't even see the lives in front of them. People who were so wrapped up in making sure they looked good, that they forgot about doing good. This is their life. It's the whole SNL skit, right? With church like, isn't that precious? I mean, you remember that skit where she's just always condescending? But she knew the verses. She knew the teaching. Uh, Oh, you're just a little sinner, aren't you? I mean, that was... The embodiment of who this leader was, except it wasn't Dana Carvey dressed as a woman. This was the leaders of the church, the Jewish temple at the time. And Jesus says, you've missed it. Because I don't know about you, but I discovered in the course of my life that religion can produce mean people. Some of the meanest people I know are religious people. Some of the most self-righteous people I know are religious people. Some of the worst people to be around is religious people. I'm a pastor. I know this. And chances are you know it too. That there are some of you probably in this room today or joining us online, and the reason you rejected this faith or you rejected Christianity was because of one of those people or because a group of those people, because of what they said and what they did and how they treated you. Because somewhere along the line, you realize they cared more about counting leaves than they did about making a difference in your life. I mean, I I remember in college, I wasn't a Christian yet, and the people who would go to the fraternity parties with me would then get up Sunday morning to go to church, and I was like, I don't understand you. Why are you doing what I'm doing, but then going to church on Sunday? And it kind of sort of starts to make you sick a little bit, right? You're like, I'm not really interested in something like that. Because if that's what that is, then quite honestly, I can do whatever I want on Saturday night, and I get to sleep in on Sunday. These crazy fools have to get up early, and then they go feel guilty about it. I can just sleep in and go to brunch. It was completely, like, it just did not make sense to me. Why these people live that way, the way I live, but then said they, they actually believe something else? And, and I would say that for many of us, we rejected, because I'm grouping myself into this for a season, we rejected not Christianity, but a version of Christianity. That we rejected faith, but it was, a, it was not really faith, it was a version of faith, a diversion of faith, a distraction. But it wasn't the real deal. And here's what's encouraging if you're in this room or if you're joining this line. And you, you can kind of, kind of say, yeah, that's me. Then you're in good company because Jesus rejected that version too. Here he is speaking to the most powerful religious, religious leaders of the day. And he says, I am not interested in what you guys are doing. And he's willing to make the point to the ones who are with him that this can happen if you're not careful, that you can start to be distracted in debates about faith instead of demonstrating your faith. And that if maybe that's you today, and that's where you are in this journey, I, I put something, because we don't have time to dive into that rabbit hole of all those things, and, but I'll just simply say this. I am sorry if the version of Christianity that you encountered in your life that caused you to start to push away this idea of God and his love for you, I want to say sincerely, I am sorry. But I would say that you're in really good company because what you rejected, Jesus himself rejected too. And that before you push out of that company, give give yourself an opportunity to explore the Christianity that he designed and that he preferred and demonstrated on the cross. And, and so in the app, I put a resource in there, and you'll see it on an icon that says Exploring Faith, and it's a talk with a far more engaging communicator with me than I am, a far better looking communicator than I am, and it's a, it's a talk that, that for about 30 minutes will allow you kind of in your safe space, place, time frame, whenever you want to, to jump into what is the role of religious rules, what's their purpose. And how to kind of maybe work through some of the hangups and the hurts that you have that you encountered through some version of Christianity that was never meant to be the Christianity you encountered. But for those who are in the room who would say, I, I'm, I'm a Christian, then I think this next part is where Jesus was wanting his, his, his followers to really understand it. He was really wanting them to, to, to own and buy into what he's about to lead them into. And so he shifts. He says, right, you should have neglected the more important matters. He's like, there are actually majors and there are minors, and let's major on the majors. These religious guys have majored in on the minors. They're counting the leaves. I want you to demonstrate this faith through the way you impact lives. And he says it's focus on justice, love, and faithfulness. One of the ways that we say that around Encounter Church is we believe love does. We say love does frequently. It's one of our mantras because it's the very heartbeat mantra of God himself. But a few days after Jesus says these words, he knows he's about to embody love, mercy, faithfulness, and justice on the cross. He knows he's about to demonstrate what he's just said where he ends up giving up his very life. He's not counting out a tenth of it. He gives all of it to give hope and to bring hope. Forgiveness and redemption and wholeness and peace and joy to our innermost parts. To give us peace that surpasses all circumstances. To give us joy that can can encounter and transform even the darkest storms of life. He knows he's about to do that. And that his example is the backdrop of this explanation. It's what drives us that as Christians, we we believe love does because we've been loved. We serve because we've been served. We forgive because we've been forgiven. That is the very bedrock. We take our cues on what to do from what Jesus did. And he knows he's saying all this, and in three days, he's going to demonstrate it. And, And this is so real. The lesson is so raw for the people who are sitting there listening to him. I think for me, where I saw this start to flesh out, I said that in in college, I was not a Christian. And between my sophomore and junior year, the summer, um, I ended up becoming one. I was processing through a lot of things, looking at a lot of different questions and doubts. I'm a bit of a nerd. I was reading a lot of theoretical physics stuff at the time. And so my mind was starting to think about God more. Because if you ever want to think about God, even if you're not sure about God, you spend time thinking about theoretical physics and you'll have a headache and you'll start to wonder where. is all this stuff come from like you know I had friends because my undergrad was in biochem that had friends that were like oh well what about the big bang and what about evolution and I'm like hold up I think you're missing the point right whenever a big bang happens people always ask who was behind it like you're missing the, the most important moment before the big bang bang what happened and theoretical physics pushes you there. And my brain, was, I'm really sincerely, as a college student, wrestling over these deep thoughts. I don't know why, but I was. And in, in, in the process of that journey, God starts to do something, and I start to meet Christians that weren't like these religious leaders, but they were like the people that I thought, this is what Christians are supposed to look like. And God began to do something in my life that I don't have time to get into right now, but it, it transformed me. And I, I stepped over a line. I'm like, this is... This is what I believe, and God did something inside of me, and it was this incredible journey, but I was broken. I had made a lot of mistakes. I had done a lot of bad things, and I had come from some really broken places in life, and so I remember um, going, going to church, Right after, and a friend of mine, I was a, a lab assistant in an organic chemistry class, and one of the students in the class happened to be a friend of mine, and he was like, hey, he heard I'd just become a Christian, um, and he was like, why don't you come to church with me? And I'm like, okay. So I go to church with him, and his like teacher, he was, it was a college group, there was like 150 plus kids this thing, and the college teacher happened to be there early, and Josh introduced me to him, and his name was Rick, and he's like, Chris, this is Rick, Rick, this is Chris, and um, I've I've shared a lot about Rick Millany and his different ways he impacted my life, but I want to tell you of the first part of the story, that that day, Rick and I talked for a few minutes, and he was like, hey, can I take you to lunch someday, and I was like, yeah, I'd love to, I'm a college student, like, of course, I mean, I, I eat ramen noodles. Like, if you're going to actually have real food, heck to the yes, man, where? And so he, um, he says, hey, meet me down at this restaurant. And it was this really nice restaurant. And I was like, I hope he's paying because I can't afford that. And so we go, and this is, like, really nice restaurant. And we sit down, and he starts to ask me questions about my life. And I start to kind of ask him questions. But he's, like, really zeroed in. And it's like two hours goes by. Two hours of this lunch goes by. And I see the bill, and I'm like, that is a big bill, right? And, and he was like, before he pays it, he says, hey, we've been sitting here for two hours. The way that um, this waitress makes her money is through serving people. And we've taken a lot of her time. He's like, so I just want you to see why I'm doing this. But this, we need to honor her. She's working. And we could really hurt her if we're not wise. And so he drops the biggest tip I'd ever seen on the table. And I'm like, what? Are you selling drugs? You know, like... <laughs> where's that coming from? And then and, and when he was, you know, it's like, we leave, and I'm like, wow, that's really cool. Like, I just met some incredibly fascinating man who cared about my life. And over the course of the next six months, eight months, he would ask me questions. We'd have more conversations. And then, and I, I, didn't, I didn't grow up with a father, so you have to realize this is really starting to become meaningful for me. He says, hey, how about we start having breakfast? Talk about life, talk about, you know, anything you want to talk about, but let's just start meeting for breakfast. And I'm like, okay, what time? And he's like, 6 a.m. And I'm like, good gracious, man, what's your problem? <laughs> 6 a.m. But I didn't know at the time. And you see, Rick Melanie was one of our nation's most successful eye surgeons. He was a multimillionaire who at the time was given about 70% of what he made away to good causes around the world. And 6 a.m. was the only time he could meet with me because he's one of the most successful surgeons our nation had at the time, and 6 a.m. was his free time. Because 7.30, he started eye surgeries, and he didn't stop to the end of the day. And over the course of those years of meeting him for breakfast, where he paid every single time, he began to unpack his life, he began to share about his story, he began to impact mine, To the point, by the time that I got married, he said to me, hey, you're a son to me. And traditionally, when someone gets married, their parents um, cover the rehearsal dinner. I grew up really poor, and there was no way, I mean, we're going to have like hot dogs and hamburgers. I don't even mean like the good hamburgers. I mean the frozen kind that get thrown on the grill. (laughs) I'm like, that's what we're going to have at our rehearsal dinner. And Jenny deserves so much better than that. And um, he said, hey, you're, you're a son to me and I want to cover your rehearsal dinner. What's your favorite food? And I'm like, dude, we can do hot dogs. And he's like, like, no, your favorite food. And um, so I told him the favorite meal at any restaurant, and he called the restaurant, and he, like, shut the restaurant down, taking some of their employees and turned his house into that restaurant. And then as a gift to me, gave me LASIK eye surgery. What I love about his life is that, that, especially his last gift to me, because a few years later he would pass away and I would be in the room when he died. But what he gave me was a way of seeing the world that the, the LASIK didn't just change my vision. He changed the way I saw the world. But specifically, he changed the way I saw Christians. Because Rick invested in me for years and Rick demonstrated what I believe we as the church are meant to live out. And the reason that many of us get paralyzed, because let's just be real, there is a reason that many Christians sit on the sidelines concerned about stepping into this game called Love Does. That we're inspired by someone like a Rick, but we're unsure how it fleshes out. But let me tell you what mentors have taught me, and let me from life, the Rick's life demonstrate some guardrails to protect you, because I think what keeps most of us paralyzed, what keeps most of us on the sidelines as Christians who desire genuinely to go out and live this kind of life, is we're not sure how to do it, because we hear love does, we see this command of justice, mercy, and faithfulness, and it overwhelms us. There are 7 billion people on planet Earth. How in the world do you do that? I have a family, or I have a job, or I'm in school. How do I do that? And I would say that what Rick demonstrated and what Jesus, what Jesus does not criticize with these religious leaders is he does not criticize their attention to detail. He criticizes where their, their attention to detail is fleshed out. Right? He, he says, look, you, it's not a bad thing that you were so focused. The bad thing is that you were focused on the wrong thing. So let's turn our focus, let's turn our attention to detail to this question of what does it look like for love does. And I think what happens when you start to think and reflect and process on it with the same level of thoughtfulness they had about these spices, what you find is there are two guardrails that you and I can apply to our lives. The first is this, is that we should do for someone what we wish we could do for everyone. First guardrail. Rick did not have breakfast with everyone. He had breakfast with me. And then he said to me during the course of our journey, hey, this has been really good. What if you and I opened it up to 10 other guys? And then he and I began to have breakfast with 10 other guys as a group. And we would talk and process through bigger questions that these college students were going with, because at that point, I was a grad student. And he demonstrated that do for someone what you wish you could do for everyone. Everyone paralyzes, but someone mobilizes. Every one of us in our lives has someone that our attention and our focus and our demonstration of love does would have a dramatic effect. It may be a coworker, it may be a roommate, it may be a family member, it may be your child. But there is someone in our lives that we look at and we see the struggle, we see the tension, we see the frustration, we see the question marks. And you can't do it for everyone, but go deep with that someone. Take them the coffee, ask them, linger at their cubicle. It's okay if you can't do that for everyone's cubicle, but linger at their cubicle and say, how was your weekend? No, really. How are you? Someone, not everyone, is the first guardrail. And the second guardrail that I think protects us on this side because that answers the who question, but the what question. And this is the other principle I think is really helpful That Rick demonstrated is that Rick's job, when he first met me, man, I was a broken, hot mess. The only thing I had going for me then that I do not have now is hair. Period. And Rick, I am so grateful that Rick did not step into my life with the the belief that he had to fill my cup, that he had to meet all my needs. Rick stepped into his life and with a realization, practicing this second guardrail, that his job was not to fill my cup. It was just to empty his. I got this much time. I got this much wisdom. I got this much experience. I've got this much struggle. And he would pour out of his life every single week into mine. And it it was not going to fill me. But his job was not to fill me and to meet all my needs. Let's just be honest. Sometimes when you walk by someone who's homeless or you watch a news story and you see what happened last night in London, you can stare at those problems and think they're way too big. What could my one thing do? Or or he or she or their marriage is so broken. What What could we do for them? But our job is not to fill up their cup, our job is to empty our own. And when you're willing to step into someone's life the way you wish you could do for everyone and pour out of who you are, not try to fill up who they are, God starts to meet you in that, and incredible things start to happen. Because a people who are focused on demonstrating their faith starts to see their faith transformed. Not just their lives, but the lives of people around them. And that's what happened to me. That I'm not just preaching a really good or even a confusing Bible passage. I am telling you what I have experienced from a man whose life reflected a life that was focused on the right thing. Which is why I think through those years, God began to to grab hold of me because I've spent enough time in ministry now that I've seen the struggle and how easy it is to shift into debates about religious conversations and misdemonstrating our faith. In verse 24, you see Jesus say this very weird line that on the surface, like everything we just said, does not make sense. He says that it's easy. He says, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. I don't know the last time you've said that, but I know the last time I said that, and that was just right now. That's not something I say regularly. But what Jesus is doing, this is where I love Matthew, right? He said Matthew was this accountant, and if anybody's got an accountant in their lives, they know how focused and how detailed and how analytical, them spreadsheets, they got spreadsheets about their spreadsheets, spreadsheets. And this is Matthew. Matthew writes this in the common, the the common, like, uh, government language of the day, which is Greek. This is what official documents are being written in in this area. It's Greek. It's the, kind of that common language for the nation. But the common language Jesus speaks in Israel is Aramaic, which is a completely different language than Greek. And Jesus uses a phrase in Aramaic that, that Matthew makes sure he captures, even though it does not make sense. You say in Aramaic, the difference between gnat and camel is gamal and gamal. This is really like it's just a difference of one sound. Jesus is making this wordplay. He's like, look, the shift in focus and attention is, so, shuttle, is so, sh- so, so subtle that a camel can become a gnat and a gnat can become a camel. And if you're not careful, followers, we can shift our focus onto the wrong thing. And it's subtle. And Matthew's like, oh, that's good. But Matthew catches it in Aramaic and then writes it in Greek. Like, he's so focused on what Jesus says that he even potentially confuses us through the translation because he wants to make sure he gets Jesus' words exactly right. And for a church, as a... as the pastor of this church and as a part of a team that dreamed about what this church become, this has been our heartbeat. We believe love does. It's why we've given away over $125,000 since we started less than two years ago to this community and making a difference in this community and to around the world. Because we believe love does. We believe that our lives should be leveraged to reflect the love that God has for us. It's the reason we do community events. It's the reason five hundred people are already registered for a community event in this month. Because that's who we are. Because that's who he was. That we are as a people committed to the idea that love does. And it's why even as we begin to dream about our next stage in our next season, we said we're just we don't want to just build a building that demonstrates hope. We want to make a difference around the world. And so next Sunday, right? we are gathering as a people, and that's kind of the deadline we've set to say, hey, if, if you're going to give to the building project, that pledge, like next Sunday is the date that we've set aside for all those pledge amounts to come in so we know what we're building because it helps to know how much we have to build. And, and we're like, look, we don't want just build a building. We want to provide hope. And so inside of what we produce that tells you about it, you see how we're committed to making room for hope here, there, and everywhere. But what's not in here, because we wanted it to be a secret, so shh, is that part of what we're raising, part of what we're all individually pouring out is going to be so that we can make a generous, a generous gift to the school, that even though they kicked us out, we're not mad about it. We want to leave this place better than how we found it. And so as we leave out, we're going to make a donation to them, but they don't know yet. So shh. Okay? Okay. But it's not just making a difference here. We said we want to make a difference there. We have a a connection with a phenomenal young couple whose lives are currently being poured out in Guatemala. They're foster parents, and they're part of a a ministry in Guatemala where they're fostering teenage girls who have babies, who've been rescued out of the slave trade. And they're teaching these girls the the life skills so that they don't go back into the trade where they were rescued from. And they're helping them learn how to become mothers even though they're still kids themselves. And part of what we're going to pour out is pouring out on what God's doing in them and the love that they're demonstrating. And then like probably many of you, our hearts have been broken by the Syrian refugee crisis and we don't think it's a political issue. I'm not trying to get political. It's a people issue. There are tens of thousands of kids who've lost their lives and have been scattered all around this world. And so part of what we're pouring out as you pour in is to engage with a, a group and a ministry that is not just providing basic necessities of life, of the water and the food and these tent cities, but it's also to come in and set up educational structures because one day that war's going to end and these kids, when they return to the rubble, they have to have skills and knowledge and education and experience to, to rebuild their homeland. And so we're going to be pouring out into this ministry who's helping set up schools and resource centers inside tent cities scattered around the world. Because even as a church stepping into a new building, we didn't just want to build walls and halls. We wanted to rebuild lives too. Because at the end of the day, we believe love dies, and we believe that what God demonstrated to us, we are to step out and demonstrate to others, and that's why there is someone in your life that you can start to become the one that you wish you could become to everyone, and that in the midst of beginning to engage them, that you can begin to pour out of who you are, not try to fill up who you are. They are, and that if we as a people begin to practice and do that, then what we will find is that we will step into something far grander and bigger than any of us could ever accomplish on our own and see God do extraordinary things through our lives individually and through the life of the church collectively. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the hope and the love that you demonstrate to us. Thank you for the fact that we love because we've been loved that we demonstrate what's been demonstrated and so even as we respond and sing today as we wrap up in our time I pray that you would bring to mind perhaps the one in our lives that um, should become the someone that we step into their lives and that you would begin to bring to mind the ways that we can pour out from our cup and to theirs And thank you for your name, for your love, for the power, for the hope that it brings. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen.